The Secrets of Doctor Who is brought to you by the Star Quest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, where we discuss everything about the hit BBC series, Doctor Who. And today we're discussing the 12th Doctor story, Dark Water. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today on the panel are Father Corey Stika. Hey, Father Corey. How's it going? Very well, thanks. And Jimmy Aiken. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Folks, be sure to follow The Secrets of Doctor Who in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn iHeartRadio, Spotify again, <laughs> Keep <laughs> subscribe everywhere. Uh, you can also find us on our StarQuest YouTube channel. That's youtube.com slash StarQuest Media, where you can now watch us in full motion video, in Technicolor, where you should be sure to definitely make sure you hit that bell because you want to get notifications every time a new episode pops up. We want you to be able to watch us because it's fantastic. And we're going to the extra effort to let you watch us record this show. Uh, another show on the StarQuest Network you are sure to enjoy is called PlayStation Portable. It's the daily uh, prayers of the church, the daily office, also called the Liturgy of the Hours. And you can find that, again, wherever fine podcasts are found or at sqpn.com slash and finally, be sure to stick around to the end of this episode because we're going to have your listener feedback. But today we're talking about Dark Water. And Jimmy, can you give us a recap of what happens in this episode? This time, Clara Oswald is on the phone with Danny Pink and finally telling him that she loves him and that she's been having adventures with the doctor. But Danny is suddenly killed in a car accident. Afterwards, Clara betrays the second, the twelfth Doctor by threatening to forever lock him out of the TARDIS to get him in an effort to get him to rewrite history and save Danny. It doesn't work, uh, but he is willing to try to help her find Danny and bring him back from the dead. They use the TARDIS's telepathic circuits to go where her and Danny's paths are likely to intersect. It turns out to be a weird scientific mausoleum with skeletons in giant fish tanks. While they're exploring the mausoleum, we cut to where Danny is at the moment. He's being greeted by Seb, a character we've seen in previous episodes, and he's being welcomed into the Nether Sphere, the strangely modern afterlife that we've been seeing people die and go to all season. While in the Nether Sphere, he meets with a boy he accidentally killed in battle when he was a soldier, but the boy runs away. Danny also speaks with Clara over a comlink, with Danny becoming increasingly distraught uh, at speaking with Clara and the boy running away. Seb offers him the opportunity to delete all his emotions, and he's on the verge of accepting it, uh, but he stops when he sees the reflection of the boy who has come back to meet with him again. Meanwhile, in the mausoleum, the doctor and Clara have met Missy, who is pretending to be a robot that works at the mausoleum. Another museum worker, Dr. Chang, tells them that it's an institute run by a man or a, founded by a man who learned that the dead are still connected to their bodies and can feel what is happening to them, so cremation is a really horrible fate. 
He also says, Dr. Chang says, that the skeletons in the fish tanks are actually encased in protective exoskeletons, but the dark water that fills the tanks uh, only lets organic material be seen. Eventually, Missy decides to put an end to the charade. She casually kills Dr. Chang, activates the skeletons who turn out to be Cybermen, and after she and the doctor leave the museum, uh, the mausoleum, which turns out to be inside St. Paul's Cathedral in London, she reveals herself to be the new female incarnation of the Master and says that graves all over Earth are about to give birth to new Cybermen. The end. So, lots happening in this. This is a, <laughs> a the first of a two-part uh, story. The finale. F- for the finale of this season. Yeah, so uh, we don't get resolutions for a lot of stuff. But, you know, the big thing in this one, and I'm remembering back to when I first watched this, was the death of Danny Pink. Mm-hmm. And it was abrupt and shocking to the point where I didn't believe it. Like, mm-hmm. when I first watched this, I didn't accept that he was really dead. It's a trick that the mas- Missy was playing, the master the Missy was playing. And, how? I mean, how do you guys react to that? Did you, Was this something, did you accept that this was the death of Danny Pink right off the bat, out of the blue? You know, it's, it's one of those, one of those uh, if there's no body, they're not really dead kind of things. At least that was the first thought. You know, we, yeah. we've said that before many times that you, in a lot of shows like Doctor Who, if you don't actually see the body, say, of the master, then he's not really dead. Well, how many times did the master come back and come back, come back? And and so, yeah, I, I was kind of the same way that this was a trick. This was, you know, it really didn't happen. And, of course, well, it did. I mean, and he, the, Danny, of course, ends up in this nether, uh, nether spear. Right. Uh, how about you, Jimmy? Um. I don't recall having any problem. I I don't recall rejecting the death. I mean, the possibility that he's going to return is, you know, I'm sure that occurred to me, but I didn't have a no, it can't be reaction. What I didn't like was the, so there were two things. Um, The first one is that it subverted the relationship they had been building to. And I'm sure Moffat anticipated people are going to, you know, have a negative reaction to that, but he thought it would be worth the dramatic payoff, so he did it. Um, this and and ultimately, Danny does not come back from this. I mean, he mm-hmm. he ends up as a Cyberman, but he 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 doesn't return to normal life after this. The second thing that I didn't like about it is there's a plot hole. I mean, he's he he dies at the at the most. Um, from a certain point of view, from the most melodramatic moment possible, because Clara has just confessed her undying, eternal, permanent, maximal love for him, and then he dies. And he's also, she's just about to confess all the stuff that she's been doing with the doctor to him, which is also extremely important. And, and then he, and that's the moment he dies. But, She's talking to him on the phone. She should hear the car accident. Right. The the idea that it just goes silent and she's going, so I just told you I loved you. What do you have to say to that? And she's just, no, there should, she should be hearing activity through that phone. Yeah. Um, this is artificial. It's, I mean, he, 
Moffat is doing it for juicing the drama when the woman's vi- voice finally comes on and says, hello, I'm I'm sorry, and so forth. I I just, you know, picked up this phone. And, and it's like, Clara should have heard stuff. Mm-hmm. And and that's just unrealistic. Now the they say your your drama is working when you don't notice or don't care about the unrealistic stuff. But I noticed and cared this, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? I cared about this. So um, so I didn't like that. Having said that, I've gotten used over the years to the fact that Danny Pink does die in this episode. So it's like I know this is coming. It's yeah. not what I felt at the time, but I'm okay with it now. Um, I still think it's bad writing to have the, have Clara not hear anything through the phone and be completely taken off guard by this. But, um, but once you accept the initial death, I think the rest of the, and the stuff before the death is fine too. Mm -hmm. But other than the moment of death, I think the episode is actually very good. I agree. I I liked it. The, the, just the last thing I want to say about it is because um, we can move on, but the, it seems like Moffat is betraying what he's set up in previous this rest of the season, including things like the Colonel uh, Pink, Orson Pink, Orson Pink, right? The descendants of Danny and Clara and all that sort of stuff is undermined and not explained. And it, mm. it, it's frustrating because it feels like you've made a promise to mm-hmm. the viewers and reneged on it and you, it, as a as a writer you got you can't do that <laughs> you just can't, you can't say this is what's going to be and then without explaining at least without at least giving right. some justification no matter how lame he well, he does have an an explanation for orson pink that makes sense of things involving like a brother or something but no. but it's yeah. not it's not ever presented on screen right right and that's that's <laughs> A problem. Yeah. The, the irony is how many times has the phrase Stephen Moffat doesn't like to kill off his characters been uttered on this podcast? And this is the one <laughs> time where he actually kills off a character and leaves him basically killed off. Emilia's a Most, Cyberman, but mostly you know, dead. <laughs> mostly dead. He's only mostly dead, which is another. We, we actually do get a, uh, a, 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 well, that's not a, that's a Princess Bride reference, not a uh, Monty Python, right. but that's coming up. Um, it, it's also the first of two times that he turns someone in the doctor's orbit into a Cyberman. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what I was going to bring up too. Is, is like he'll come back and do this again with 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 Bill, and it's that uh, that feels kind of recycled. Like yeah. in Bill's case, though, we got to see it from a different angle because she becomes a Cyberman progressively in stages, and it. Whereas Danny is just off screen; he just becomes a Cyberman. Right, right. And, of course, that doesn't actually happen in this episode. It happens in the next one. So we're kind of mm-hmm. jumping the gun a little bit. But it's one story. You know, I found it interesting watching this time, noticing as Clara is talking to Danny as you know before the accident, she says things like, Danny, well, this is actually after the accident. Danny, speak to me. It's killing me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and... You're the last person I'll ever say this to. I will never say I love you again to anyone else. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as he's dying, like it, it, it kind of rewards rewatching in that sense is where you picking up more and more subtle hints mm-hmm. as it goes along. So I thought that was interesting. The dialogue in this is really well done. Yeah. Um, it, it, there, 
I mean, Moffat has this gift for quirky dialogue that can also be very impactful, very meaningful, and operate on on more than one level and express complex emotions. And we have that running throughout this episode, mm. um, not just in the initial conversation with Danny and and Clara over the phone, but in the doctor's later interactions with Clara and with. Seb and um, and Danny's interactions and mm-hmm. with all of the dialogue in the in the mausoleum, um, it, it I, Moffat's talent for dialogue was really on show in this episode. I thought there's a oh, lot yeah. of really complex yeah. emotions that are being expressed because you know Clara is driven by Danny's death into a kind of despair. Mm-hmm. And she and and emotional numbness because she noticed that when Danny died, life just went on for people and it didn't seem to matter. And yeah, and and she there's a scene where she's talking with her grandmother in the kitchen and her and it's it's an interesting scene. I mean, this is an example of the kind of the subtleties of the dialogue. But um, but the grandmother is is saying when when Clara is seemingly dismissing the importance of Danny's death, saying it was boring. People just continued on. It didn't mean anything. The The grandmother says, but he deserved better. And mm-hmm. Clara says, he he didn't deserve better. I Nobody deserves anything. I don't deserve anything. But I'm owed. Right. Mm. And it's like, okay, there's no actual difference between deserve and owed. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that's an illustration of how Moffat is, is playing on some real subtleties in the emotions here. And then the grandmother says, well, who owes you? And then that's when yes. the doctor calls or picks mm-hmm. up the phone. I felt like in that scene, Clara was like saying his death is boring and ordinary because of all the, th- of all the things that we encountered that I've survived, that even Danny has encountered and survived. He gets hit by a car crossing the street, and it just seems unfair that he should die in such a boring, ordinary way, or Mm -hmm. something along those lines. Mm -hmm. Also, would the cars they have in England actually kill you crossing the street? (laughs) I think people do die in in car pedestrian accidents in England. I think there's probably a statistic that. does happen. (laughs) They they haven't banned cars that can kill people yet. (laughs) <laughs> okay. The cars in, in Europe and, and England seem that they make these days seem very lightweight, but okay. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't one of those tiny uh, Italian smart cars. <laughs> yeah. Father, are you going to say something? Oh, it, well, it struck me too with, with Clara, how she basically goes emotionless, you know, trying, you know, out of shock, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. a, a natural reaction. But then you contrast that to Danny Pink, who he's dealing with all these emotions in the afterlife, quote unquote. And he's has the choice to get rid of his emotions, you know, and of course the emotionless, uh, Cybermen, right? You know, like this, this idea of removing that emotion removes your humanity too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's good. That's a good point. Yeah. And that emotionlessness, that despair that she's apparently feeling so drives her into doing something unthinkable, which is, mm-hmm. You this know, is really great. This, yeah. I love love this sequence. Oh yeah. She she she's on the TARDIS and the doctor doesn't yet know that Danny's dead. And she's kind of, oh, I want to go see a volcano. Like she's got this all planned out in her head. And as she's talking to him, she's 
surreptitiously walking around the TARDIS control room, collecting all his keys from all the various hiding places that she yeah. knows about. She knows he has seven keys and she grabs them all. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it kind of shows how Clara has become so almost too powerful at this point. She's too much like the doctor in that sense. Like we talk about all the time, especially in New Who, companions becoming too doctor-like. And that's when they often leave the TARDIS. That and, is kind of a cliche on this show. Yeah. yeah. Right. And so we've, we're seeing that. I from mean, Clara our, here. our show, we talk oh. about that too much. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. So, uh, but in this case, like she's, she's, she has all this knowledge and this understanding and she's using it and she's including this, this whole thing with the sleep patch that she thinks that she's got. And um, so she uses it to threaten the doctor. And so we have this scene of, Clara doing the unthinkable. It's kind of wild to see a companion out of control. The the way it's presented is is not as linear as mm-hmm. um as, mm-hmm. as as the way you just described it because we see um you know the doctor picks up this phone and and then we're on this volcano hellscape like at the end of Lord of the Rings. And and Clara is standing on the edge of of the cliff, and and the doctor is facing her, and the TARDIS is behind the doctor, and she's got the seven keys to Doomsday, and mm-hmm. and to prove she is serious, she tosses one of them immediately mm. into into the lava, and when it hits the lava, we have the cloister bell sound. So we know something powerful and dangerous is happening connected with the TARDIS. And she explains, I'm going to throw all seven of these keys away if you don't fix Danny Pink's situation. And the doctor, uh, and and then as they're talking, we get these flashbacks where she comes into the TARDIS and says, I want to see a volcano today. And And he's like, why? And he's resisting this volcano visit. And she's like, I've never seen lava. I want to see it. Oh, lava is rubbish. Prove it then. And so she, we have, you know, this kind of standard Dr. Clara banter as she's going around collecting all of his keys. And then she says, you know, those sleep patch things you had, can I have one of those? No, you can't. I'm having trouble sleeping. Sorry, you can't have one. And then she finds them and takes one anyway. And, and so we, as we're, we're cutting back and forth between the scene on the volcano ledge and how we got here and on the volcano ledge, she tells him, every time you say no, I'm going to throw away one of these keys. And he effectively says no, and she throws away another key. And then she throws away because he's, he's, he starts to try to regain control from her of the situation and says, um, and, and says, you know, throw away the next key. Cause I'm just going to keep saying no. And she, she doesn't do it immediately. And he says, he says, do as you're told. And, um, and she says, when it comes to, when it comes to taking control, you have no clue. And she throws away all of the keys, but one of them. Mm-hmm. So now there is only one key left, and she's not going to play his game about throw them one, throw them away one at a time, and I'm not going to yield, so you may as well give in to me. She's cut right to the end of the game and has only the one left, and he still refuses to 
to go back and change history. And this time he's got an explanation and it works better than the Mm -hmm. Adric explanation. (laughs) Because after Adric died, that was immediately what Tegan and Nyssa said to the fifth doctor was, we've got to go back and save him. We can change history. And the doctor had to come up with an explanation for but for why they couldn't accept something other than but the dinosaurs have to die. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he couldn't right. he, he couldn't really come up with a good explanation. He just said, never ask me to do that again. Here we've got an explanation. The doctor says, if I do go back and fix and change history, I mean, I can change history with precision, but not in this case, because if I go back and change him, and change history to so that he doesn't die, you will never come to me right now. And if you never come to me right now, I will never go back and save him. And therefore, there's a paradox loop. Um, It's essentially a forward-looking grandfather paradox. Maybe with Orson Pink involved, a great-grandbaby paradox. Um, But he's actually got an explanation. Now, of course, the explanation is itself something you can challenge, but he's got an explanation this time. And and in this very tense confrontation, Clara finally throws the last key. And she has no keys left, and she breaks down crying and says she'd apologize, except she'd do it all again. And which is a really complex line, mm-hmm. you know, on an emotional level. And it's at this point the doctor reveals that this is all happening in a dream state, that when she went to put the dream patch on him, it, it's not a sleep patch, it's a dream patch. It induces a dreaming state. And when she went to put it on him, he got it on her hand. I'm not clear if she was putting it on him the wrong way. Mm-hmm. It may have been she was putting it on him when actually she was applying it to herself. Right. But But one way or another, she ended up with the dream patch stuck to her hand. And he's been letting all this play out to see, you know, how far she would go, which was all the way. Right. Yep. I mean, it was a dram- you know, it's it's very dramatic. dramatic scene. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. But but well crafted. I like that 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 back and forth intercut because it really upped the ante and much more than a straightforward depiction would have been. So yeah, I agree. Well, and they played it well too. That when it looked like she was putting the patch on his neck that he actually reacted and then it flashed back into the lava. Yeah. You know, like, like she had succeeded. And then of course, then they show later that he was able to turn around and get it on her hand instead. They right. Kinda, and all the keys that she thought she saw in the lava were just scattered on the floor of the TARDIS of the TARDIS. Yep. And so, but in the end, the doctor says, well, she thinks that he's kicking her out. He says, you know, well, what do we do now? And he says, go to hell. And she thinks he's saying, Get out! Get out of here! I never want to see you again. But what he's then he kind of explains. No, we're we're going to hell or heaven or wherever it is that Danny is in the afterlife. We're going to go get him. And this is this is one of two Stephen Moffat crossover lines that are self indulgent. Well, especially here, this is very self indulgent. Mm-hmm. This um, so it, there is it is like at the end of the second. So each episode of Sherlock has three – each season of Sherlock has three episodes except mm-hmm. for a special. And in the final season of Sherlock, John's wife Mary dies and in the first episode or – yeah, first or second. Anyway, yeah. she dies. She dies. And she she – before she dies, she mails a DVD with a final message to 
to John and Sherlock, specifically for Sherlock. And the um and when at the end of the episode Sherlock plays it, the message that he gets from Mary is Sherlock, go to hell. And it is a it is a it is a very I mean, there's a little bit more to it than that, but the, the bottom line is Sherlock go to hell. And and we discover in the next episode this was deliberately taken out of context. She's speaking figuratively. Mm-hmm. You have to go to hell in terms of in terms of your own life. You have to give in to your drug addiction in order to pull John out of his grief and get him functional again. Mm. And so so she didn't mean what she said. Well, we get exactly the same Stephen Moffat thing here That's where true. Clara says, what are we going to do? And and the doctor says, go to hell. And he says it in a way that totally leads her to believe she needs to leave, which she starts to do. And then he gets confused and it's like, no, we're going to go to hell or heaven or wherever people yeah. go where they die. And it's another deliberately out of context go to hell. Yeah. It's, it's the go to hell in the sense of Dante going through hell to get into paradise. Yeah. And that's followed up by, I think, one of the better lines of the season, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. kind of... Sh- makes the he is one of the things that has really humanized the 12th doctor mm-hmm. and people still share today as like as a meme but he says yeah you betrayed me betrayed my trust you betrayed our friendship you betrayed everything i've ever stood for you let me down no she didn't well right <laughs> it's a little over the top and then clara says then why are you helping me and he says why do you think i care for you so little that betraying me would make a difference and it's a great mm-hmm. line. It's a Christ-like line. I mean, that's one of the, 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 the ideas behind what Christ has done for us on the cross was, you know, we've betrayed him with sin, but that doesn't make him turn away from us. And so it kind of puts the doctor in that, that savior role in that sense. But also, that's, this is what true friendship and true love is like. Betrayal doesn't necessarily result in the destruction of, of things if you care enough for someone. So I, I really like that. It was a real nice moment. Mm-hmm. So we get to Danny now waking up in the nether sphere, uh, the nether space or whatever, whatever it is, is this place that nether that, sphere is what Seb calls it. Okay. Okay. Yep. I just make sure I got, had that right. And it's this place that Missy has concocted with all the, the gathering up the souls of the dead. And we're, we're later told that it's a data slice of the matrix. So it's effectively a time Lord hard drive that is archiving right. people's data patterns as they die and it's kind of funny because he's getting interviewed by this guy seb and i'm like this is the good place <laughs> this is like yeah you wake up what he what does he say something along the lines of don't worry you know like they think mm-hmm. everything's mm-hmm. gonna be okay and it's like oh wow this is just like the the, the tv show the good well, place I, I would argue it's probably closer to hell than heaven because i mean it was a pretty much a beige corporate office office he wakes up in the yeah. nether sphere afterlife department <laughs> Well, without spoiling too much, that's actually not far off from the good place. <laughs> so, uh, <I> know. <laughs> but it 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 is similar to the good place. It also has the kind of bureaucracy and the modern office, you know, aesthetic. Has anyone offered you a coffee? <laughs> yeah, um, the good kind, the good yeah. instant. <laughs> but it is also darker than than episode one of the good place because yeah. there's all this stuff about we hear someone screaming off scene and Danny says, "What's that?" and Seb is like, "Oops." Looks like someone left their body to science. 
<laughs> right. and, and we have a burner. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah. So, and so we have this, this interview thing and um, there's some good lines here. Like he's got an iPad that he's using to, you know, to take notes. It's like, you have iPads in the afterlife. We have Steve jobs, which, you know, yeah. this, this was a few years after Steve jobs had passed. Um, but Seb has this explanation that he gives to Danny about the afterlife, which I, again, another, I think is another good one. He's like, Imagine embryos had telephones, and Danny's like, what? He's yeah. like, no, no, go with me. Imagine babies in wombs could talk to other babies in other wombs. What would they say? What would they think life was like if they could talk among themselves? They'd think life was nine months long. Then, boom, trap door opens out, you fall, gone forever, never hear from those guys again, nothing at the end of the cord. Well, that this is, and he says, this isn't really an afterlife. It's just more life than you were expecting. And I'm like, you know, that's not a bad explanation for the Christian understanding of the afterlife, which is it's more life than what we were expecting. So I, I thought that was kind of nice. Also, speaking about the um, what happens in the womb, I was recently on a – I was filmed for a panel on a show called – I had never heard of it, but it's called Stephen Colbert Pre- Tuning Out the News. Huh. Hmm. And it's a it's a partly animated, partly live action comedy news show, and they wanted me to be on a panel of pro life speakers, and and I knew what I was getting into. I knew that this was going to be, um, you know, a, a mocking thing, mm-hmm. uh-huh. and so I I came ready for that, and I would I would push back on the hosts. They, most of the people they got. Now, the first thing they got was, it turns out once we actually get on the air on in the recording session, we're all guys. And the first thing I said is where are the pro-life ladies? Well, they didn't want any pro-life ladies because the setup joke is so for an issue that has nothing to do with you. Why do you feel so strongly about this subject? And, um, and if they had gone to me first, I could have pushed back on that comedically. Like, um, you know, say, Hey, who do you think father's babies? It has something to do with us. Yeah. But, uh, they, they, you know, wanted to, most of the people, everybody on the panel, but me and one gentleman who is a professional pro-life activist were kind of clueless pastors who didn't really understand the game that the show was playing. And so they got a lot of clueless answers out of them. And that's really what they wanted mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I was being, I was, I was, I was being sharp and pushing back on their answers. So of course they cut all of mine, yep, right. but, but one of, one of my answers was the question was life begins. Is this is from an ostensibly pro-life host, you know, who's an animated character. And so the, in, the anim, it's, it has the same shtick as Stephen Colbert used to of, I'm the real conservative in the room. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so the anchor is, is asking me, um, who's played by a voice actor that I could actually see. He said, the question is, life begins at conception. So what's your favorite memory from the first 12 weeks? And my answer was, actually, my favorite memory is from before I had eyes, when I had to rely entirely on ESP. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. So So if if babies were relying entirely on ESP, maybe they could talk that way. Yeah, maybe they could. How do you know they don't? Um, Yeah, this is, I guess it's a a Paramount Plus show, um, Stephen Colbert tuning out the news. Did that episode air yet? Do you know? Yeah, it aired last week, I gather. 
Oh, mm. wow. Cool. Uh, but you're not in it. So what's the point of watching it? So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I did. Yeah, I did. I thought that was a very interesting, you know, uh, look at afterlife. I mean, this is an episode about afterlife. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, so let's kind of jump back to the TARDIS with uh, Clara and the doctor. They use the telepathic circuits again. And uh, this time Clara is, you know, think about Danny. Think about where he is. Don't imagine him. But, you know, think about him in the TARDIS will take us whether your timelines will intersect again. And the doctor's thinking it's going to take them to the afterlife, but it takes them to this mausoleum, which we'll find out later is St. Paul's Cathedral. Inside St. Paul's Cathedral. It's apparently run by an organization called three, the 3W Initiative. Right. And then, you know, and they drag it out. What does 3W stand for? And we find out that's the three words that have changed everything, which turns out to be don't cremate me. And there's our second Stephen Moffat crossover reused idea thing, because <laughs> if you then watch. Um, so the idea is you're still connected to your corpse. So if your your soul is so if you're cremated, it hurts like hell. Yeah, literally. <laughs> right. and um and it turns out that that same idea is used in Stephen Moffat and um Mark Gatiss's adaptation of Dracula mm. which they did a three ah. they did a they did a it's like a single season three 90 minute movies about Dracula and um and you get exactly the same idea that mm. if you're cremated it, you're conscious through the whole thing. You feel the cremation. Interesting. Mm. Okay. Okay. And they have so, that happen to a character in the show. It It's a very creepy idea, obviously. And, you know, mm -hmm. would, would change many ways we think of things. But um, so we have this mausoleum. They encounter Missy. And again, I, I wanted to put myself back in the shoes of who I was when I first watched this. Not suspecting who Missy was, but not having confirmed yet. And so mm -hmm. then she's acting kind of like robot like and even gives the doctor a big smooch and oh. flusters him. This is awesome because yeah. <laughs> she doesn't just kiss the doctor. She is like incredibly powerfully kissing the doctor. And it's this <laughs> making initial, out initial yeah. Uh, yeah, it's like she's making out to him and he's just horrified pinned against a wall. Right. And and she ends up by like repeat and she's claiming to be a robot. She says, I am Missy, mobile intelligent systems interface. And it's like <laughs> you can see, oh yeah, that would spell Missy. Um so yeah. So she's pretending to be a robot. She's acting robotic. You have not received our welcome package. And then she plants one on him and keeps planting one on him. And it's in, and he's just frozen with terror at what she's doing to him. And then she ends up by repeatedly kissing him on the nose. <laughs> and, and, and then she turns to Clara and Clara says something and, and you also have not received our welcome package. And she starts to make a motion and Clara says, I'm good. <laughs> I wonder if the kissing on the nose is meant to be like figuratively. This is on the nose, like yeah. <laughs> this is you know, uh, and and it makes the the reveal later so much more fun. Like this whole reveal of who she actually is, you know, yeah. Missy, short for mistress, you know, like master, and that 
but Capaldi does it perfectly. It's just this horror comes over his face when he realizes who she is. I mean, it's really fantastic. Mm-hmm. Well, and there's he knows that she's a time lord, or at least has two hearts. Yes, because yeah. there's a Which point we- where she puts his hand on her chest, and he can feel. You know, she's talking about it comes from her heart, or her healing comes from her heart, and he put she puts her hand, his hand on her chest, and you see the look of like. I'm feeling two heartbeats. There's something he doesn't say anything. Yeah, he again, you see that look of this, yeah, he, There's not just one heart here. There's two. He doesn't realize at this point that it's two hearts. That that's what he's feeling because she has to point that out to him later, and he finally yeah. it clicks for him later, and he says, "You've got two hearts," and she says, "And they're both for you." Right. Yep. And which is a you know reference to the master's previous you know obsession with the doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, in the initial sequence though, where after she's kissed him, they're grilling her on. So who is, I want to speak to someone in charge. I am in charge. Okay. But who's in charge of you? I am in charge of me. I am an autonomous robot. And, uh, well, okay. Who maintains you? I maintain myself. I am programmed for self-repair. I, and then for no real good reason, she says something about she depends on her heart. And I'm finally, maintained by my heart. I, I'm, yeah. I'm maintained by my heart. And they say, yeah. well, who maintains your heart? And she says, my heart is maintained by the doctor. Yep. <laughs> and, and Peter Capaldi. And so this, of course, is very significant. Right. And um, Peter Capaldi says, Doctor Who? And she says, <laughs> Dr. Chang! And yeah. she calls for him. <laughs> yeah. But the Doctor very, is like... Very nicely written and very nicely yeah. played. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that Doctor Who drop right there was, was so good. You know, like, my maintained by the Doctor. Doctor Who. Yes. <laughs> like, that's it. Yeah. You know, for who's on first. So, yeah, there's that, that moment. And, yeah, and the, the, the calling of Dr. Chang. I mean, it was so great. I mean, again, we, we've said it over and over. Michelle Gomez is awesome. Um. So they they have these skeletons in the water tombs we've talked about, and it will turn out that they are skeletons inside the Cybermen shells because you can't see anything inorganic. But our, I think here's a through, fun, through the dark water, the dark water masks right. anything inorganic. Right. Thank you. And but but Cybermen are more than just skeletons of human beings in the shell, right? I mean, they're a melding of the human and or- yeah. inorganic parts. Yeah, so- they're, they're more like the Borg, but all of these Cybermen happen to be just basically skeletons with some extra ligaments on them. Yeah. Which is weird. Then they're, they're basically just robots, right? <laughs> I mean, this, these ones. Like, yeah. They're more machine than man now. <laughs> right, yeah. right. I guess it's the, 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 her innovation is connecting them to the soul, which will all come up in the next, in the next well, uh, story. And as we found out from the power of the doctor that, yes, they just want to become robots to the master's chagrin. Right, right, right. In the end, they want to get rid of all the organic parts. What was the deal with Danny meeting the the boy from Afghanistan? Now, obviously, this was a boy he accidentally killed in combat. Mm-hmm. And so he's carrying this with them. So why was why was it so important that he that he be shown or connected with this boy? The boy requested it, at least according to Seb. Mm-hmm. That's okay. that's. That's why Seb asks him at one point, have you ever killed anybody? Because he's getting this request from, he says, it's very rare to have someone just show up like you did and, and they immediately have a request from someone who's already here to meet them. And usually it's, he implies because you killed that person. 
right. they have kind of prior. It's been facilitated for you to meet with this person, and usually that really rapid facilitation is because someone has killed someone. But is this Missy kind of tormenting Danny, or is May, this maybe, something else? But, yeah. but who knows? Yeah. I don't think they follow. I don't think they give us an explanation on that in the next episode. They certainly don't in this one. But it the way it results in this deletion thing that that's going to happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Except it doesn't. The boy stops it. Right. That's what what happens at at the end of the episode. Yeah. 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 Um, Yeah. There's. See, I was confused. I thought the deletion. I must have missed the line. But the deletion Mm -hmm. was to delete himself entirely. Like this is a way to end your existence. But it was just delete emotions. It was the emotions too, because because he was having these strong emotions after seeing the boy and and hearing from Clara and everything. And that's when Seb says, "All you have to do is press this button, and your your emotions go away." Oh, emotions go away. Okay, I, I, I must have missed that because that is what connects it to being Cyberman. Because Cybermen have. Uh, removed the emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk about why he was upset because he they put him in touch with Clara um, through the interface. So Clara is in the mausoleum yep. talking to Danny over a computer and he's in the nether sphere talking to her through an iPad. And the doctor, uh, they the, Dr. Cheng explains that they've been telepathically scanning her because when she came in, one of the questions she was asked was, do you want to see, do you, did you come here to speak to one of the deceased? And Clara indicated yes. And so they've been telepathically scanning her to find out who is it she wanted to talk to so they can put the two of them in touch. Right. So they've, they've, they've determined it was Danny and now they found Danny. And so they're going to let her talk to her like she was going to ask. Um, and the doctor is being ridiculously suspicious at this point um he i mean there's some good lines like uh, this facility was founded by a guy with the bizarrely coincidental name dr scarosa um i mean i thought daleks were going to be involved Mm -hmm. you know with a name like scarosa um but um but he was he was this is more Moffat finding the horror in the normal, um, you know, white noise that used to appear on televisions back in the antenna days. He, he, Dr. Scarosa thought, decided to run this noise through a translation matrix he had designed, and he got out the voices of the dead. And this actually taps into some parapsychological stuff I won't really go into, but, mm-hmm. um, uh, he he then heard the words and founded the institute and so forth but um you can communicate back and forth as a result and so uh danny uh, but the doctor even though he was open to the afterlife earlier and it's like yeah almost every culture in the universe has a concept of the afterlife always meant to fu- to to investigate it and find out what's true and i just never have so he's being open to it there but then he becomes so you're saying Dr. Scarosa was an idiot? <laughs> right. Yeah. <You> know? <laughs> yeah. Why? Well, he, he believed it was a telepathic communication from the dead. Why? Was he an idiot? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and Dr. Chang then goes a few lines further and the doctor says, so you're, so he was an idiot. And, <laughs> right, right. and, um, and it, those are fun lines and everything, but the doctor all of a sudden conveniently becomes way too adamant about the dead do not come back. Right. Because, you, dude, 
your plan was <laughs> let's go to the afterlife and play Orpheus and bring Danny back. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you're going to do that, other people could do that too. There are other, you have to, you shouldn't suddenly be not open to that possibility. You shouldn't be so adamant about it. So this is convenient. This is bad writing, actually, because it's inconsistent with what's previously been set up for the character in the very same episode with no explanation right. for the change of attitude. Um, but uh, the doctor tells Clara that she he's been telling her she needs to be skeptical and focused and clever and not wallow in her emotions for Danny if they're going to find him. So the doctor is going off to investigate the fish tank tombs. And he tells Clara, now that contact with Danny has been established, he tells her to be skeptical and clever and ask questions. You know, ask it, ask this voice something only Danny could know. Because he, she says she recognizes the voice as Danny's, and he says, well, if they've telepathically scanned you, they could have lifted a print. Yeah, and if they've been telepathically scanning you, they can lift all the answers to the questions mm-hmm. she's about to ask. Right. So this is this was one of the classic problems with investigating mediumship in the 19th century. How do you know the sitters don't just have the knowledge in their subconscious and the medium is just picking up on it? In any event, the um, uh, Clara starts asking questions, and she does it in the most incompetent way. This is another flaw in the writing. She keeps telling him, say something only Danny could say. Right. Okay, that is not a question. That is a demand, and you're not giving him helpful information. I mean, she does, to be fair, ask a couple of of questions, like what was the name of the restaurant we had our first date in, and he doesn't remember. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. which is, okay, yeah, he's got a Y chromosome. Big surprise. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> And, and but after that, after this initial couple of questions that don't go anywhere, it just degenerates into him saying "I love you," and her getting frustrated and saying that doesn't mean anything until until I know who I'm talking to. Um, and if you keep saying that, I'm going to cut you off. And then, other than that, all she's telling him is say something only Danny could say, and she's not giving him any guidance on what that would be yeah. that she would recognize. Because it needs to not just be something that is unique to Danny. He could say, when I was four years old, we went to the beach and I stubbed my toe. Well, yeah. she wouldn't know that. Right. You know, she, it needs to be something that they both re- will recognize as something that's uniquely Danny. Um, and she's utterly not giving him any help. She's just being a demanding little child. See, see, and I don't see that mm-hmm. as a flaw in the writing. I actually uh-huh. see that is good writing for a flawed character. Yeah, sure. I see, you know, that, that that was intentional, that she could not ask the kind of questions. She was so emotionally tied up in this, in what was going on, she could not come up with the questions to to do that. So yeah. I, I don't, this is, there, there are times, you know, to blame Stephen Moffat for flawed writing. I don't see this one. Actually, I see this the opposite. I see this mm. as he's really showing, although she's trying to play emotionally, you know, distant from all this, that she's severely hit by it. I actually think this is one of the better mm. spots of, of Moffat's writing in this, just saying, yeah. hey, you know, she, she can't come up you know even to ask you know questions like you remember back when you know you were at the orphanage you know right. things like that 
Right. It's sort of consistent with how Clara, especially throughout this episode, but even other times, just cannot manage to keep herself straight. Like even that very first uh, scene where she's trying to tell Danny she loves him and confess to what she's been lying. She can't even talk straight to him in that. So it's kind of consistent with that, I guess. She's sounding like the doctor. Shut up. Shut up. I'm telling you to shut up. Keep shutting up. Yeah. Yeah. I, I. So I validate your interpretation of that. I see how you can take it like that. Um, for me, it was frustrating, but yeah. I can see how you could take yeah. it that way. And and I can see how you could take yours too. So okay, <laughs> we see each other. Yeah. Good. <laughs> there was just before that, there was a nice little uh, thing between the doctor and Clara where um, Dr. Chang is trying to tell her that they, uh, that what he's going to tell them if she's lost someone recently is going to be very disturbing. And the doctor says, she'll be fine. And she says to him immediately, speak for her, speak for me again. And I'll detach something from you. Love that yeah. line. <laughs> and then she says, I'll be fine. Yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, she'll be, she will be fine. Don't speak for me. So I thought that was really good. <laughs> also, we have a nice, um, we have a nice thing where, uh, in the dialogue again, where she's talking to Danny and Danny's been saying, I love you over and over again. And she says, if you keep saying that, I'm going to shut you off mm-hmm. because that's not helping her. No, it's Danny. And which is true. But she, um, Danny begins to discover what her, what her plan is because, uh, she wants to be with him and she's willing to kill herself to be with Danny. And he's like, no, if it, it, you need to live your life and he does not want her to kill herself. And so he deliberately tells her he loves her again mm-hmm. in order to get her to shut off the connection and conclude it wasn't Danny. I shouldn't kill myself. And so he's saving her life by telling her he loves you and getting her to reject him. And that's that's very complex emotionally, and mm-hmm. I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. So me, while this is going on, Missy and the doctor are out in the gallery with all the the, Muslim, the, the tombs in the, the water tombs. And we have this interaction with, between Missy and Dr. Chang where she tells him she basically she's going to kill him. And he's like, please don't kill me. I don't want to die. Say something nice. Say something nice first. Like, say something nice to me before I kill you. But I'm not going to kill you until you say something nice. Yeah. <laughs> and it's very confusing. And he ends up saying something nice, and then she kills him, which is, like, yeah. I mean, it's horrific. I mean, it's that sort of casual cruelty that the Missy and the Master are yeah. known he, for. He's desperate and is so trying to say something so nice that she won't kill him. Right. He's like, I've enjoyed every minute of working with you, and I'm sure you couldn't possibly find it in your hearts to zap. Right. Yep. Right. So, uh, and then, you know, she, we have this climactic moment where it's time to release the Cybermen, open the tombs and have them emerge. And that's when she gives the line from uh, Monty Python, bring out your dead, which I yeah. Yeah. was a nice little touch. <laughs> and with the tombs opening automatically and this big matrix of tombs with Cybermen stepping out of them, we get our tomb of the Cybermen shot. Yep. Yep. And then as they come out of St. Paul's Cathedral and as after the doctor and Missy are out of St. Paul's Cathedral, we get all of the Cybermen marching out of saying there's okay, there's our the invasion shot. Yeah, right. So, That's right. Wow. Yeah. Well, I like the line uh between the doctor and Missy 
uh, as they're getting ready, as they're trying to escape, or as the doctor's trying to escape, he says, I assume you've got steps. And she goes, of course, I'm not, da- I'm not a Dalek. So tying into that Scar- <laughs> Dr. Scarosa, I'm not a Dalek. Right, right. That's right. Um, and she, Missy says the key strategic weakness of the human race is that the dead outnumber the living because she's found a way to animate the bodies of the dead in order to create Cybermen from them. So she doesn't have to kill the living to make Cybermen. She just, and as we'll find out in the next episode, has figured out a way to turn them into Cybermen in their in their graves and they will rise from there. Yeah, I'm not as wild about that idea. Yeah, well, also sure there will be pe- say. there will be <laughs> people in the audience who will have recently lost people, and this mm-hmm. is not. Yeah, this yeah. could be a little disturbing there'll, for there'll, them. There'll be people on this panel that have yeah. lost people recently. So yeah, yeah, I d- yeah, that's not a pleasant thing to think about. Um, but then we have the big reveal, the Missy reveal, um, and she has that line, like as I mentioned before, she you know I'm uh, I'm mistress and Missy in, in Capaldi's face. But then she says, I couldn't very well keep calling myself the master, could I? And so it's yeah. just that 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 lovely moment of the reveal. I just thought that was a really great moment in this episode. Mm-hmm. Well, we, uh, we've got the one great line, too, related to that, where the doctor realizes that Missy is a time lord. And she goes, oh, time lady, I'm traditional. Yeah, yeah. yeah some real she, she also, he says, which time lady? And she says, the one you abandoned. And it's, and mm-hmm. okay, that's a description of Susan. Although it also oh. could it also could apply to Romana, um, although that was more voluntary. The, the, Susan was completely involuntary, yeah. right? Um, but uh, but it, I'm a little surprised they didn't explore that a little further. But it, those are the two. T- I mean, he's also met the Ronnie and a few other time ladies, but he never abandoned them. The two that he abandoned were Romana and and especially Susan. Right, mm. right, interesting. So, and that's where we come to the uh, the cliffhanger ending. Uh, any th- final thoughts on this episode, Father Corey? Nothing here. How about you, Jimmy? So I thought this was, with the exceptions I've noted, I thought it was a weird but good episode with creepy horror vibes um, and a lot of interesting ideas to think about. One thing I liked that they did visually that they didn't point out, but they 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 come close to, not verbally, but they, they come close to, really pointing it out for the audience is um, the logo for the 3W Institute Mm -hmm. is a large circle with a much, much smaller circle at about, um, depending on which way you're looking at it, at about five o'clock or seven o'clock. And that is, it's, it's the shape of a Cyberman's eye. Right. And, and it's all over the place in their, in their institute. And at one point the doctor is saying, I, when he still doesn't realize the Cybermen are involved, he's saying, I keep feeling like I'm missing something obvious, something that's staring me right in the face. And as he's saying that he and Dr. Chang go through double doors. And as the doors swing back, the, um, there, there's an, there's a, um, there's one of these logos on one door. And then as the other door swings back, it's also yep. got a mirror image of that logo on it, and mm-hmm. it's like you're staring a Cyberman in the eyes right? <laughs> on these doors. And so it's like, yeah, the doctor's missing something obvious here. Yes, that was a nice moment. That was very, very <laughs> cool reveal there. 
Awesome. So we do have some feedback I wanted to share. This was on our uh, feedback related to our recent episode where we had a retrospective on the 13th Doctor and Chris Chibnall's showrunner era. And then, you know, look a little bit looking forward to the Russell T. Davies return. Uh, and so the first feedback comes from Tim Lucchese via YouTube, who wrote, Dear Russell T. Davies, you want a Doctor Who cinematic universe? Much like the 10th Doctor destroying Harriet Jones, I have six words for you. Fugitive Doctor and Missy team up. <laughs> that would be fascinating. That would, that would be would be fun. A lot of fun. Wow. I just imagining the, the, the repartee would be fantastic. And uh, then this comes from uh, Jason via Discord on our Discord server. And he says, all right, since you read Discord on the podcast, it's time I give you guys a rant. Mm -hmm. Science fiction isn't meant to be just spaceships firing lasers. It's True. meant to show us a mirror of our society, to show yeah. us how, how our world could be. It can give us hope, but more often it gives us warnings. Jimmy, you act as if you'd read something like Brave New World, Ready Player One, or The Hunger Games and dismiss them as woke. No. I like I like when Doctor Who is preachy. I want those messages. Science fiction is best not when it's fun, but when it's grim. Please read this. I think the best stories are the ones that make us feel, the ones that make us angry, the ones that sadden us. You are dismissing these stories simply because you disagree with them. Stop whining. Doctor Who was preachy from the beginning. How can a show with robotic space Nazis not be political? Russell T. Davies will bring the politics. He did it with It's a Sin, it's a show that he did, by criticizing the response to AIDS in the 80s. Deal with it. Maybe you need an open mind. Okay, response? so <laughs> while I'm waiting on Amazon to ship my new open mind, um, <laughs> I, uh, I would say that I, since I was the target of this one, um, I would say that I don't uh, dismiss things like Brave. Now, I haven't seen Ready Player One, but I have, you know, I'm familiar with Brave New World, and I wouldn't dismiss it as woke. I don't, I, I recognize that there are, uh, there are political messages in, uh, in science fiction and in other fiction. It's not limited to science fiction. Um, but it is, but science fiction's job fundamentally is to entertain and not to preach. And there is a line where if you include too much preaching, it, it ceases to be entertainment and it becomes mm -hmm. annoying. Um, this is one of the classic problems. And this is not just a problem with science fiction. This is also a classic problem with Christian fiction mm -hmm. because a lot, of, a lot of explicitly Christian fiction is terrible because it's too preachy. Um, it's not, it's not actually a compelling story about compelling characters. It's, a, it's, it's some kind of extended parable and its primary function is didactic rather than, um, than to provide entertainment and enrichment and an insight on the human experience. So this isn't a distinctly science fiction thing. I agree with Mark Twain. Uh, yes, there can be political elements, and they can be of whatever stripe you want. It doesn't have to be woke. It could be something else. In fact, if you go back in Doctor Who's history, especially in the early days, there's a mixture of different political themes. Uh, some of them tend to skew liberal. Some of them tend to skew conservative. It's not all one thing. Uh, having said that, as Mark Twain put it, the purpose of fiction is never 
to preach overtly, but to always preach covertly. So yeah, you can have your values of whatever they may be in the fiction. They just need to not be the primary thing you're there about. If right. you look at, for example, Star Trek, um, you know, Gene Roddenberry felt very passionately about certain messages. And in the original series, they come out really strongly. There are certain episodes that are message episodes. And the only one of them that really works is let that be your last battlefield. And that only works because of the sudden reveal that, oh, one of these races is black on the left and white on the right, and the other is the reverse. Because nobody in the audience noticed that until they pointed it out. And that is right. an effective way of pointing out how ridiculous racism is. And that's, that's why people remember that episode, is because of that one reveal. But you look, at, um, you look at other Gene Roddenberry message episodes, and the consensus among Star Trek fandom is these are inferior because mm -hmm. it's, it's too much about the message, not enough about the characters and the story. And so I, and the same is true, I would say, of Doctor Who. I do have an open mind. I am able to appreciate stories, even when I disagree with the politics in them, as long as they're good stories. Mm -hmm. But in the Chibnall era, with episodes, like, for example, Demons of the Punjab versus Rosa. Mm -hmm. Demons of the Punjab is a much better episode. Now, right. it, it does have political stuff in it, but it paints us a complex portrait um, that makes sense in context, and it's a much better episode. Rosa is completely unbalanced in terms uh, – it's just ham-fisted. It is not presenting us – with a portrait of humanity, it is paint, however you want to say it, it's paint by numbers, it's cartoon coloring book type writing with a space Nazi racist that makes absolutely no sense given the backstory they've established for him. So, um, so I, I think it is a fairly widely spread sentiment in, um, in Doctor Who fandom. It's not universal, but it's fairly widespread that during the Chris Chibnall era, a lot of things became a lot more political in a way that harmed the story. Mm -hmm. And I would say it is not science fiction's function any more than any other fiction to pre fun fiction's function to preach at us. If I want to be preached at, I'll go to church. Mm -hmm. you know, and I, I will take up on that because there is a place, I'm in place for preaching and I do it every Sunday. That's my job. When I'm one of my jobs when I'm up there at the altar is to preach and I hopefully am a good preacher. That being said, you know, I'm going to push back on the idea of fiction, you know, science fiction being best when it's grim and dark and you know, all that. I think some of the best science fiction are those that can tell a good story, a good uplifting story, and can do it while presenting a message. You know, having a message within fiction is a good thing. It makes interesting fiction, but doing it preaching. Um, one example I can think of where this fails is actually C.S. Lewis and his space trilogy. It, you know, it's got an interesting story to begin with, but then he gets more into the philosophy and the theology of the fall and preaching about, you know, salvation and all that. And the, by the end of the third book, I lost interest because it was more about, you know, this race on Venus being saved than it was actually you know, telling a good story. Um, Jimmy, you brought up uh, Christian fiction. I read uh, one summer when I was a seminarian, the 
Left Behind series. And that Mm. was the main line Left Behind series had just been finished. And the people I was living with actually had a copy of the entire series. And it's mostly just kind of turn off your brain fiction. You know, you just kind of enjoy it for the sake of reading something that you just kind of read through and it's easy reading and everything. But about halfway through, they start bringing in characters that do start explicitly preaching where there's literally paragraphs of this person writing a blog that is preaching and it becomes completely derails the entire story from that point on. It becomes about telling the, you know, preaching. And so there's ways to tell stories that don't fall into that trap. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. If I wanted, I just want to add on that. The whole, the, the whole, it's, I think it's a very important point he makes or important point I want to address, which where he claims that science fiction is best when it's not fun, but when it's grim. That's an opinion. If you like grim science fiction, that's valid. Yeah. Uh, you know, be, you know, by all means, go seek that out. But that's not a universal axiom. That's not universally true. I mean, it's best for you, perhaps. But for me, science fiction is best is when it's r- reveals something good and true and beautiful mm-hmm. about humanity, about the universe. And and that's one of the things about a podcast like this is we're talking about our point of view and and based on some universal understandings from our Christian faith background. And yeah. that's, I think, a, a, an important distinction is, is, you know, a lot of this, of course, is opinion. We are, we are expressing our opinions, but mm-hmm. it's also not divorced from uh, understandings of what our faith teaches us either. Right. And so, you know, and I think it's important to maybe point out too that we might have a different definition of woke that we're working from because yeah. the way our, our letter writer describes it seems a little bit more expansive and generic than I think we might uh, phrase our own criticism, or at least how I Speak might. Speak for me again, and I will detach something from <laughs> so, you. So yeah. I, I realized at the end I was saying we, <laughs> royally. Yeah. But, but yeah, yeah but I not- noticed in my, re- in my response, yeah. I didn't even use the word woke. I just spoke in terms of politics generically yeah. to involve, to avoid um, getting entangled in what exactly is woke or what is yeah, not. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and it's, you know, if you know, talking about the, the the dark, you know, sci-fi, grim, dark sci-fi, that traditionally hasn't been Doctor Who. It's yeah. had elements of that at times. It's had you know horror. It's had all these different genres of science fiction, but the series as a whole has actually been generally very positive and uplifting and hopeful. You know, the yeah. the character of the Doctor generally has been a hopeful character. You know, it's the times he's ranting against humanity, and then there's times where he's praising humanity for the hope and the joy and the light that it brings, you know? And so yeah. for Doctor Who to kind of go that way is not not something we want to see, Well, you know? And, and again, there are, there are very good science fiction, you know, the Blade Runners, you know, things like that, that have that darkness. But that's not what Doctor Who is about usually. Yeah, Star Trek isn't either. Star Trek is known Star for Trek its optimistic either. future, mm-hmm. and um, and Doctor Who is on balance optimistic, even if there are monsters that you hide behind the sofa for. Mm-hmm. But if our correspondent is, you know, believes that for him, science fiction is best when it's dark and gritty, that's fine. That's one take. It's not a universal one, and I'd mm-hmm. encourage him to also uh, go on Amazon and order an open mind. <laughs> <laughs> so uh 
thank you, Radical Edward, for your 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 feedback. And uh, you know, we again we welcome all feedback, and we love to hear from uh, our listeners and uh, what you think. So, thank you very much. Even if you disagree with us, we love Even to hear you, it. Yes, yeah. especially sometimes. Um, all right, so we'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Doctor Who, including Gary J, Michelle H, Christopher P, Thomas V, and Leonides S. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue The Secrets of Doctor Who and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. And we'd also like to thank Victor Lambs, who edited this episode. So that's it from us. We'd love to hear what you think of the 12th Doctor story, Dark Water. You can let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com or the Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page. Or send an email to Who at sqpn.com. Or visit the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord. Or you could get or overload and deci- decision paralysis. <laughs> right, or don't do any of it. You can also watch The Secrets of Doctor Who now in full video on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash starquestmedia. We'll be back next time we'll be discussing the second part of this two-parter. Until then, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Doctor Who. Thanks, Tom. Father Corey Stika, thank you as well. Thank you, Tom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to the secrets of Doctor Who on StarQuest. And remember, do you think I care for you so little that betraying me would make a difference? Hi, everyone. This is Dom Bettinelli, CEO of StarQuest, with a special message as we approach the Christmas season. This past year, the StarQuest Network has continued to expand our mission of exploring the intersection of faith and pop culture through our many entertaining and informative programs. Now we need your generous financial support to reach new audiences with more of the life-changing and uplifting programming we've been creating for more than a decade. That's why it's very important that we hear from you this Advent and Christmas, the time when nonprofits receive most of their support for the year. If you are already a supporter of StarQuest, we thank you and ask you to prayerfully consider increasing your support at this time. If you're not yet a supporter, please become one now. Every gift counts. Could you give $15 or even just $10 per month? Whatever level of support you can offer, please show your support for SQPN this Christmas. And remember that your gifts may be tax deductible. Just go to sqpn.com give. That's sqpn.com give. May God bless you this Advent. And may you have a blessed Christmas season.